Hello, I am Crystal Grafton Combs, and you're listening to Coffee Talk with Crystal. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you have joined us before, welcome back. This podcast is a personal project designed to connect with the women of Alpha Omicron Pi and our greater community of sisters and friends. Sometimes I will answer questions from our sisters, and others I will invite friends to do the same. So thank you for listening, and now let's get to my next conversation. Good morning, Chantel. Good morning, Crystal. How are you today? I am doing well. How are you? Doing all right. So I have to start with sharing with our sisters a little fun moment, because a few minutes ago I was confirming how to say your last name. And I loved the way you shared that. Would you share it with everyone? Absolutely. My name is Chantel Schieffer. Last name is like Schief of Wheat. And this is amazing. I love it very much. (laughs) Chantel, thank you for joining me today. We are now several weeks into social distancing and I am really trying to create opportunities for our sisters to hear from one another about what this is like in everyday life, why it is still important despite the exhaustion that is staying at home, and then anything that at the end you may be able to share that seems to be working for you. But first, I would love it if you would share your AOPI story. Thank you. Happy to. Um, I am uh, calling you today from Montana. I live in Bozeman, Montana, where the Alpha Phi chapter is located. That's where I went to college at Montana State University in the 90s. I initiated um, AOPI 25 years ago last month uh, and celebrated that big anniversary. I believe you did as well. Yes, congratulations. And, yeah, thanks. And I... Um, I was really drawn to AOPI as a collegiate member because I am an only child and um, had, you know, never grown up with siblings and, you know, the idea of having, you know, those sisterly bonds was something that was really important to me um, as I was going into adulthood and uh, AOPI was just a natural fit for me. I had friends from high school that were in the chapter and it just, it felt like home immediately and I was uh, just so grateful for the opportunities that I learned uh, through volunteerism and leadership uh, as a collegiate member. And then upon graduation, I stayed active as a volunteer pretty much through those those last 20 years. Um, I lived in Kentucky for a number of years, and I served the Pi Alpha chapter. I was a chapter advisor at Capo Omega and moved back to Montana and um, became chapter advisor at Alpha Phi for several years. And now I serve as the um, uh, president of our Bozeman alumni chapter. And so giving back to AOPI has been a, a theme of my life um, since graduation. And it's been a, one of those really important connections that I have to not only my university and that college loyalty component, but just um, to our ritual and to, to our founding values. So I find it fascinating that I, too, am an only child, and I do think, I wonder if anyone's ever done a study of sorts across Greek organizations about whether or not that has any impact on 
our continued commitment because much like you, I think I was seeking out a greater um, family as far as the number of people that I could connect with because I was also raised uh, as an only child, of course. And and I do think that that it has added an element to my life that I don't get outside of AOPI because I don't have siblings the way that that many of our sisters do. And so I love that that was part of your journey as well because it is it is just a really fascinating concept that I've thought of many times. Maybe I should do a study at some point, but I'll have time for that business. But now let me ask something because I too just celebrated 25 years. Um, does it seem like it's been that long? Oh no. No, it seems like yesterday, really. I mean, I just last week had a, a, a Zoom social hour, happy hour with some of my um, sisters from from college. And, you know, we hadn't seen each other for, you know, maybe five years in some cases. And we just picked up right where we left off. Like we had just walked out of our big brick house. And um, I, I, there's something I think about that, you know, that connection that just makes the time seem like it doesn't really even exist. It is true. And I even remember being being a collegiate member and thinking our advisors. Now, we did have um, the chapter advisor when I was there. We had a couple and it turned over um, as it as it should, I think, in places where there is a lot of opportunity. We had some younger chapter advisors. But as with many of us, by the time you have the time to give, you're I'm going to say a little bit more mature. And and I remember thinking when I was young, these women were so old and accomplished. And now I look and I'm like, oh, they were younger than I am in this moment. <laughs> but I'm sure everyone thinks the same about me. I think so. No. So, Chantel, talk to me about why, you know, we were talking just a minute ago before we started recording that the novelty has has begun to wear off a little bit of what social distancing means and some fatigue has set in, I think, with some of our sisters because while everything, even in in chaotic times, can be somewhat adventuresome, then it, then when it settles into a new reality, I think it becomes a little more overwhelming for our sisters. And, and for individuals, even if you enjoy alone time, but but particularly for ours who who do not and what i wanted to share with them is why it is still important to continue this path and i think that you have a really interesting perspective that i hope you will share with us today yeah thank you and and thanks for the opportunity to to really share why i think it's important um that we continue with social distancing as we try to get um this pandemic um in under control in some way um there's so much that we can't control about what's happening right now in our world you know our public health system is in crisis our economies are in crisis but what we can control is how we respond to it and the biggest way that we can respond to it as individuals is by um, staying home and um, you know, taking the risk out of us contracting the virus or spreading the virus and that is particularly important to me uh, as a mother of a medically fragile um, child who is um, he's seven years old and when he his name is Dax 
when he was five, he had a bone marrow transplant to address um, a symptom of a very rare genetic condition that he has. And, um, you know, his ability to, um, you know, weather that storm has been the most important lesson for us in this social distancing time ourselves. He had, you know, six months in the hospital in Seattle. We were displaced from our home. Um, we then came back to Montana and he was in social, he was in isolation for a full year where he couldn't leave our house unless he was going to the doctor and very limited people could come into our home um, just to keep his immune system safe from infection while his immune system was building back up. So it's, it's, I come from a place of saying that this has been easy for us to social distance ourselves because we are used to it. And we are, um, we are grateful and lucky that we can, my husband and I can both work from home. So we went into social isolation even before our state had asked us to, before the governor had proclaimed um, a stay-at-home order for Montanans to stay at home. So we've been doing this for about three weeks now. We just went into our um, social distancing order from the governor last week. And I know it's it's so challenging. It's so hard for so many of us to completely upend our our lives like this. You know, I'm the type of person that plans my day down to like the 15 minute increment, and everything is color coded, and every block is full. And when this the realities of this pandemic started to really um, show itself, you know, all of those plans went out the window. And we've had to restructure what our days look like. And that's part of my coping mechanism that I'll talk about in a little bit. But in order for us to, to stop this virus, to maintain um, our healthcare systems, um, we have to stay home. We have to stay home if we're healthy. Uh, we have to stay home, of course, if we're sick so that we're not um, infecting other people. And our um, healthcare systems, our doctors and nurses can catch up to um, all the sicknesses that are coming into their hospitals. Um, and I have a, one of my best friends is a nurse, and I hear her stories every night about what she's seeing, and it's just it's terrifying to me um, that um, if we don't get a handle on this, we're going to run out of we're going to run out of supplies, we're going to run out of um, personnel to to really be able to navigate this challenge. Well, and it's interesting that you say that. Um, so you may know my husband is a dentist, and we have a small practice here in our hometown, and we have, you know, we operate not on a just-in-time inventory system, but we really don't stockpile things. We have enough masks at normal operations for about three to four weeks, and, and of course, now there are none to buy. There is long-term waiting, and so we have actually, we contracted with a woman out on the West Coast who, before everyone was offering to make them, made us um, a series of washable masks that we can then use one per day should it get to the point that we have to to still create protection for our women. We are closed right now with the exception of emergencies so that it will relieve that stress off of our local hospital because it is a smaller one. We are very fortunate to have it here, but we are very, very quick to look long term and see how we can, number one, in the short term, do our part and close except for emergencies to take that pressure off. But then number two, when we can reopen, how can we safely do that and protect our community, the people that we work with, 
all of those things. And I think sometimes people don't realize what it puts at risk when we aren't able to do those things. Um, Tell me a little bit, though, about Dax, because I think it's important that people know him for more than a child who has had these these challenges, but also who he is as a person. Mm, thank you. I always love the opportunity to talk about my son. He's he's pretty amazing. Um, he, as I said, is seven. He's actually going to celebrate his eighth birthday here in a couple of weeks. So we'll be having you know a party with mom and dad. And he's in first grade. He is um, such a bright light in so many people's lives, and his his life has been um, has been challenging. You know, he was born three months premature and spent you know two months in the NICU. Uh, when he was about six months old, we started to learn that he was going to have pretty serious challenges. Uh, when he was five, he was diagnosed with this rare genetic condition. So it's been really kind of you know one. Um, one challenge after another with him and his attitude through all of that has been just amazing. He is one that just really lives in the moment, um, minute to minute, day to day. Um, he is as cool as a cucumber when it comes to, um, things like this. Like he, he understands a little bit about what's happening. Um, and you know, he misses his friends. He misses his school. Um, but he understands that, in order for us to um, be able to resume our normal operations, we have to be able to stay home for a while. And um, he's having a great time just really, you know, having lots of mom and dad time, lots of reading, lots of learning and playing. And um, it's snowing in Montana right now, like almost every day. So we've been outside playing in the snow. Um, And he's, he's just, he's a remarkable kid. And, um, you know, through our our challenges, we've been able to really share a lot of his story uh, pretty, pretty widely. And he's been, uh, been sort of a a poster child for Make-A-Wish, for Be The Match, um, and some local nonprofits as well that have really worked to, to make his life easier. So he's, um, so a lot of people, especially in Montana, do know his story just from from those campaigns. But he's uh, he's a he's a pretty awesome kid, and we're really grateful that he's ours. Well, so let's talk about that. I think that most people understand what be the match. I'm sorry, what Make a Wish is, because it is such a a present organization, and it certainly in the Panhellenic world. I think even some of our Panhellenic sisters sponsor um, and partner with Make-A-Wish the way that we do the Arthritis Foundation, but I'm not sure everyone is as familiar with Be The Match. And I, many years ago, AOPI hosted an opportunity to get on the National Registry for Bone Marrow at a convention, and it was a cheek swab, and I was happy to do it and still support Be The Match every year as we are able because it is... There are many stories that could be shared about Be The Match, but I think when you have one that is that hits so close to home, it's important for people to know what that is and how they give, what that looks like. Um, financially, of course, every, every organization would love to have it, but Be The Match is a little bit more intentional than that. Would you share a little bit about that? Yeah, 
absolutely. So Be The Match is, is a national bone marrow um, registry, and uh, that's how we found Dax's bone marrow donor, who is a teacher in um, Texas, um, who we've actually got to meet, which has been really great. And, and she's become an incredible advocate and volunteer for Be The Match and, and sharing our story as well. Um, so with Be The Match, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the cheek swab, it's, it's so simple to become part of the registry. You just um, go online to their website, request a kit, and they'll mail it to you. You take this Q-tip and you swab your cheeks, inside of your cheeks, and you send it back in. That's it. And then you become part of the registry. And um, your DNA becomes part of this big database. And when um, a, a donor is needed for a, a person, a child, an adult, whatever, that needs a bone marrow transplant, whether it's because of, um, of a blood cancer like leukemia or a genetic condition like Dax has, um, they uh, go into that database and find potential matches that, um, that line up with a certain number of markers. I think there are 10 different markers that you need to have a perfect match. And we were, we were very grateful that we had um, something like 152 matches for Dax wow. and then narrowed it down to the one. Yeah, it was amazing to have that many. There are so many people on the registry, or excuse me, there are so many people waiting for uh, a match that have not been able to find one. We have um, a, a, a child that we know of that has Dax's same condition in Florida, and he has been trying to find a match for three years and hasn't been able to. And um, there are certain, there are definitely calls for um, donors or potential donors across you know across the globe, but also in um, communities of people of color, so that um, that those um, opportunities are there for for everyone to be able to find a match as well. And so I think sometimes people get really, and I'm going to say scared, I think that's an appropriate um, way to describe the hesitancy that people have. You know, donating marrow is not like donating blood, but I think it is. And I did quite a bit of research because my boys were very young and, and I was also afraid that what would that look like? What, how, do, how does that pull you away from your family? What is the long-term ramification, if any? And, and all of those things were so comforting when I started the research about what it means to be a marrow donor. It is, it is not um, complex. It doesn't take you away from your family for many, many months. It is, it is a very manageable process should you be able to do it. And I think it's important for people to not be afraid of that. I absolutely agree, and, and I understand from, from our donor, Jennifer, that um, it was a process that was a little uncomfortable, but certainly wasn't you know, long-term painful. It was a few hours of um, extracting the, the marrow from her, um, and and then it came to us in, uh, in, a, in a red Coleman cooler. I remember watching the nurse walk down <laughs> with it and put these bags that just looked like blood. Yeah. Um, up on the the rack um, for his IVs, and and it was it was surprising to me that it was that uh, I don't want to say simple because it certainly wasn't simple, but it seemed less complicated than than I had imagined. Um, and and she was able to donate from from afar, and people can donate bone marrow from any you know any part of the globe, really. And um, and it's I think it's a really important way for people to be able to save a life. Uh, without having to give up a lot, uh, you know, you, you regenerate your own bare bone marrow, so you're not 
that's not taken away from you permanently. And I think that it is uh, a real call to action for many people. And for me, I think it was having our boys. I, I don't know that I had ever thought of it before then. And when we made the decision, I had a couple of people really challenge me on the decision to do it because our children were so very young. And and again, they didn't have a whole lot of information on what that looks like from the donor perspective, and which isn't nearly the way it is from the patient receiving it, right? But that that, that was precisely the reason I chose to do it because if, if one of my children needed it and there was someone out there who could help, I would be on my knees prayerful and hopeful that they would make that same commitment. So I love this and would encourage everyone, um, if I'm not mistaken, it's bethematch.org, right? Correct. Yes, so that's right. to definitely go check that out because it is a way that, that we as individuals can make a huge impact on other people's lives and, and still continue with our own and hopefully in a better place for it. Um, so, so as we weather the current storm and as you literally in the snow you said that almost with glee i'm sure dax feels the same and i think i wouldn't walk outside the door if there were snow on the ground every day um tell me what you you know this is normal for you but at some point it is still not you know you all went through quite a bit to get back to a traditional normal and now we are in a new phase of what that looks like Talk to me a little bit about how you are managing during the COVID pandemic. You know, for me, staying calm really has sort of three components. One is routine, one is mindset, and one is connection. Um, I mentioned my penchant for planning. I... um, I love to have structure. I love to know exactly what's happening every day, um, you know, and for several days um, after. Um, and and when this first hit and we started to see events canceling, um, I my job is all about live events. Um, so a lot of that started to go away. Um, I I got really nervous. Like, what what is this going to look like? And the first thing that I had to do was was really put in structure for myself and uh, and for our family. Uh, so we have you know certain times of the day that I work and certain times of the day that my husband works. And then when um, you know Dax, little Dax, is doing his lessons, uh, one of our one of us is helping him with those lessons. So um, we have school time, we have quiet time, we have reading time. Um, and, and we have our meals, you know, scheduled and structured, but at the same time, we have to be able to give ourselves grace and say, you know, I just can't today. Um, I, 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 this structure is important, but I, I need a break. I need to take an hour to go for a walk or to do something else. Um, so, so for me, routine, um, having, you know, the same time that we wake up every day, uh, just like we would if we were going to school and going to work and, and having those pieces of structure in place have been really helpful uh, for me to stay calm. Um, another one is, is mindset. Um, so I start every day with, with a gratitude practice and I pick one to three things that I'm grateful for for that day. They can be big things like I'm, I'm grateful for, um, I'm grateful to have a job or they can be small things like I'm grateful for this really amazing cup of tea right now and 
throughout my day, if I start to feel a little anxious, if I'm starting to get worried, I reflect back on one of those three things. I actually write a little note to myself that I keep on my desk or in my pocket that says, I'm grateful for these three things. And if I start to feel anxious, I pull that note out and I read it and I remind myself um, that I can't control what's happening in the outside world, but I can control what's happening in my house and I can control what's happening in my mind. Um, I also, part of the mindset component really is, you know, having faith in humanity and, and in a higher power that uh, we are going to continue to do the right thing um, as we're navigating these times, um, that we're going to find ways to connect with each other. And it's about having hope that um, when we get to the other side of this, our society maybe looks a little bit different. Maybe we're kinder, maybe we're gentler, uh, maybe we're more connected. And, and of course, you know, love is the most important component. Um, love of my family, love of my friends, um, my colleagues, my AOPI sisters. Um, so, so those three things are, are critically important to my mindset as well, faith, hope, and love. And then the last way that I stay um, calm in crisis is really connecting. Um, connecting with um, my team every day or as often as I possibly can, connecting with my friends, um, I, you know, FaceTime and Zoom, um, pretty much all of my work time is, is connecting with, uh, with folks that way. I've also been writing a lot of letters and postcards and sending them just through traditional snail mail. And I think that that's, and I'm getting a lot back too. And so when I get those postcards and letters back from, from others, it just, um, it reminds me that, you know, that humanity is, it's going to survive this and we're going to be okay. And that those connections with the people that I love the most are probably even going to be stronger. You know, it is true. Checking the mail, and it has been for as long as I can remember, is my very favorite thing to do every day. Um, Particularly in this day and age, because I pay all of my bills online. So I don't get bills in the mail anymore. So when I go, it really is for the fun stuff. And I owned a stationary studio for many years. So the the written word, it may take me a very long time to sit down and write something to someone. But when I do, as scribbly as my penmanship is, it is always done with a great amount of of love because (laughs) it is truly my favorite medium of communication. I, I love that you talk about the control that you have or don't. Sometimes I think I have control, but like even during this call, the back door's opening, the phone is ringing, and I'm thinking, really? Like I have zero control of what's happening here. But you did mention that you were having an amazing cup of tea. Now, I do, I did make a reference to this early on in this special edition series, but I do have to give a shout out to you for the Phantom Tea Party that you all hosted, which for those who are not aware, it is not a fundraiser. And even before the COVID pandemic, it was designed to connect women across the miles. And while we are all spending more time at home, I hope, uh, and I, I did enjoy my cup of tea, talk to people a little bit about what that was and how you set it up, any forums they could use, particularly now to stay connected with their alumni chapter sisters or really just anyone. Yeah, so the Phantom Tea Party was something that the Bozeman alumni chapter started a couple of years ago, and it was an idea of one of our officers um, to 
uh, replicate this event that she had heard of before, and it's it's called Phantom Tea Party. And we set a day. Uh, this year, we happen to have it on our Founders Day uh, in February, and um, uh, sisters would uh, sign up and say, yes, I want to be a part of this, and with the intent of sending um, a letter and a tea bag to another sister that they would be matched with. And, um, and then we would open those packages on that day, February 23rd was our day this year, and read the letters and enjoy a cup of tea. And when we did it a few years ago, it was probably one of the most popular events that we've had um, with the Bozeman Alumni Chapter and Alpha Phi Chapter. We've got sisters all over the globe, as I think every chapter does. And so this was a really cool way for us to um, connect sisters that didn't live in Bozeman. And this year we opened it up to anyone who wanted to participate, Alpha Phi or not. So we had sisters like yourself, um, sisters in Reno, sisters in Canada who participated as well. So it was neat to have an opportunity to even get to know somebody, somebody new. And I know one of my best friends, um, Carrie Boltz-Zawadney, she received your um, your. Uh, your, your package, and she was just beside herself, the international president. She was matched with the international <laughs> president. She's like, is this for real? <laughs> and she's so in Alaska. Sweet. She is in Alaska. She's the alum president in Alaska, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I actually really loved that, and I think that's funny because in my mind, it was just Crystal sending my favorite kind of tea for, for people that that are listening. It's a rose hip infused tea. And, and of course, I bought it originally because it had roses on it, but it really is one of my favorite teas. And I thought it was the most fun to be able to connect with someone in, in that's not in the lower 48 in Alaska. And then I actually received a cup of tea from a young woman who is a medical student and is an Alpha Phi alum, and she sent me a tea, and it happened to be in the midst of my travels, and it was for rejuvenation and to help with your immune system, and it could not have come at a better time (laughs) for what I was doing then. So I really enjoyed the opportunity to learn about her as well. Um, now, tell me, from a logistical standpoint, do you use a certain platform or app for that that you could recommend to sisters? I think we really just use an Excel spreadsheet, um, to be honest. But if, if folks are interested, I would ask you to email me, and I'd give you my email address, uh, and I can connect you with the officer that, that facilitated that. But I, I do think that she just she used a simple um, Excel spreadsheet and just put everybody's information in and then, and then matched them up and sent them out. Well, and I will definitely say for anyone who is interested, who cannot connect with you, if they will inbox me when we uh, when we share this podcast, I will definitely create that connection. And so everyone can do it. It really was just a great opportunity for that moment for me. I was not home a lot, but to have an hour to sit and sip and read about another sister um, through her own words, and I just thought that was a great opportunity. I also want to say to you, once again, thank you. You mentioned that we hope to come out on the other side of this as a kinder, more gentler society, and that hopefully it will renew our faith in humanity. And I will say to you that this conversation today absolutely has helped me to renew my faith in humanity. And I appreciate you so much for sharing your story. 
Thank you, Crystal. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. And everyone out there, thank you, as always, for listening. And until next time, be well.